Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent. Down the line from New York, we're joined by Laura Noonan, our US banking editor. And from China, we're joined by Don Wineland, our Asia financial correspondent. This week, we'll take a look at the European Banking Authority and what it's doing to tackle money laundering. A look at Chinese non-performing loans and the hidden problem in the Chinese banking sector. And finally, over to Laura Noonan in New York to talk to us about running. Our guest this week is Jose Manuel Camper, the chairman of the EBA. And also we have a sound clip from Olivier Garçon, the European Commission official in charge of financial stability. First, though, to that story about the EBA and what it's doing to tackle money laundering. Well, Caroline, you spoke recently to the new chairman of the EBA, Jose Manuel Camper. It was an interesting interview that you had, I think, covering a lot of topics, but there was understandably a lot of focus on money laundering, given that the EBA has a new remit to look after this topic and try to clamp down on some of the abuses that we've seen of late. Tell us what you found most interesting about what he had to say. Yeah, that's right. So we spoke to Jose Manuel Camper last week in Paris. It was his first interview that he's done since taking up the reins from Andrea Enria and the first that the EBA has done in its new home of Paris. Mr. Camper, I think, was most keen to dispel some misconceptions about what exactly the EBA's mandate is around money laundering. So you'll remember that last year was very much dominated by a number of money laundering headlines from various countries around the EU, Malta, Latvia, but the biggest of which was, of course, Danske Bank's 200 billion euro problem. Now, what Mr. Camper is saying is that the response, which was to give the EBA these new powers, is actually quite a narrow role that the EBA has. It's very much a coordinating role, trying to make sure that regulators in different countries are talking to each other. And Danske Bank, that particular problem showed that that can't really be taken for granted. The authorities in Denmark and Lithuania really weren't talking to one another. So it's much more that focus that the EBA has, rather than it being a tougher money laundering authority per se that's there to ensure that dirty money can be cracked down upon in any kind of meaningful way. Well, let's hear from Mr. Camper now and exactly what he had to say on this. We need to be prudent on the expectations of the mandate that the, that the EBA has on IML. You know, it's been an evolution situation. We have a mandate to try to coordinate the single regulatory framework on IML. Of course, trying to coordinate, I'm saying trying to coordinate because that framework itself is based on directives which leave a lot of room by construction to national authorities. I don't want to give the impression that we have received the mandate of doing AML protection for the European Union. We have not. We have to receive a mandate. That's the increase from what we have, which is basically saying, you know, you need to help in the coordination. And this is a lot for us already, because I'll tell you the resources that we have been given for this, 10 people, 10 FTEs. So, you know, 
and try to enhance best practices, share best practices, coordinate among authorities, and enhance training. It's not a mandate to harmonize AML, either regulation or practices, because to start that process, first we'll need to get the legislation to be harmonized, i.e. to move from directives to regulation. You need to start with a regulation that is homogeneous, and we don't have that. We have a directive. The AML, as an activity in the European Union, is regulated by directives. By definition, that doesn't provide a single rulebook. If you have then a single rulebook, then you can start thinking about having a single authority. But without having the single rulebook, it's not really yeah. meaningful. So, yeah, we hear there what the plans are for the future. But, of course, the EBA was pretty tainted itself for not having dealt very well with the Danska scandal, with its supervisory board seen to have thwarted action. Absolutely. And this kind of goes to the core of the problem, not just of money laundering, but several issues that the EU has to deal with. And the European supervisory authorities, of which the EBA is clearly one, have this organisational structure by which there is this board of supervisors over the top, which is made up of all the regulators from across the various countries that make up the EU. And in Danska's case, the EBA initially found that there were two potential breaches of EU law and put it then to the Board of Supervisors to try and take forward. But then the board, made up of all the various different countries' regulators, decided not to take anything further. And this points to this wider governance issue that the ESAs have. It was looked at as an issue back in 2017 as part of this overhaul of the ESAs, but was ultimately shelved. And that is a problem, so says Mr. Camper, but also Olivier Gerson, who was speaking at our FT banking conference last week. Yeah, absolutely. Let's hear what Mr. Gerson had to say on this. The standard is good. I think we have one of the best standards in the world for fundamental rendering. But the issue is nobody really wants that the neighbour has a, has a look into what you're cooking in your, in your back kitchen. Mm. None of the member states want that. So they say it's fine. So... We don't have really the means to audit the national system and make sure they are up to standards. That's one. And two, they don't talk enough with each other. And the, the cure to this is a leap of integration. But for this, you need to be ready to give away part of your sovereignty. You may know that the European Commission proposed a very deep reform of the European supervisory authorities exactly to fix this type of problems. And the unanimous, no, not unanimous, almost unanimous, well, widely dominant answer we got from member states is, why are you bothering us? There is no issue. It works fine across the board. And actually, until nine months ago, they were saying it works fine in anti-money rendering as well. Because the standard of it doesn't work fine is we have had a major industrial incident. And that's not my standard. <laughs> My standard is we have everything in place to avoid having a major incident, which is actually the standard any private corporation would work with. Well, certainly the European money laundering story is not going to die anytime soon. Whether the regulators manage to get on top of it is another question. Let's move on now to our second topic for the day and a look at the Chinese banking system and the hidden problem of non-performing loans. Let's go over to Don Wineland, our China financial correspondent. Don, thanks so much for joining us. It does seem as if the spectre of non-performing loans is rearing its head again in China. You were writing very interestingly about the topic and particularly highlighting the potential plight of, I think it was, 19 banks that have yet to publish their 2018 accounts 
which some have seen as a concerning sign, not least because I think one of these banks, Boshang, has in the interim been taken over by the state amid a big NPL problem. Is that all right? And if so, what's going to happen next? That's right, Patrick. So basically, this all kicked off with Baoshang Bank about three weeks ago. Baoshang Bank was taken over by the Chinese government, essentially. This hasn't happened in 18 years. So clearly a very strong signal that something is amiss in the Chinese financial system. Baoshang, very interestingly, is connected to a tycoon named Xiao Jianhua, who was essentially kidnapped from Hong Kong about two years ago. He was using his bank as a piggy bank to fund his own company's operations. And that's led to, you know, high concentration risk with his loans and eventually the need for the government to step in. So after the takeover of Baoshang, people began looking at the other banks that have yet to publish their financial statement for last year. Baoshang is one of them. And there's really big questions for a series of other banks on what's their essential rate of non-performing assets. So yeah, that's kind of where we're at right now. And there's a suggestion at all that the same type of practice that Baoshang illustrated might have been true at other banks. Uh, Owners funding their own investment strategies through their own banks. I think it's definitely something that people are looking at right now because we've seen this repeat itself several times already. Some listeners might recall the case of Anbong Insurance, which was an insurance company that went on an acquisition spree two years ago, three years ago, buying up insurance companies in Belgium and banks around the world. They were essentially issuing wealth management products and using those as a way to fund their operations illegally. You know, it was against Chinese regulation and the government was forced to step in and take over that as well. So I think this idea that there are tycoons that have used their financial licensing, whether it's an insurance company or a bank, to fund rapid acquisitive activity, you know, it's certainly a concern for the regulators going forward. A final thing then, can you put this into context for us in terms of scale? I think I'm right in saying that the 19 banks that we're talking about here have combined balance sheets of about $650 billion, which obviously is a lot of money, but it's in the context of the broader financial system, including the Chinese financial system, relatively small. Are there concerns that, you know, this could just be the thin end of the wedge and that broader debt problem that people worry about at a macro level about China could accelerate from here? You're right in saying that the $650 billion in assets of these 19 banks, it's a fraction of the Chinese banking system. The banking system in China is bigger than that in the U.S. It's the world's biggest banking sector because the financial system is concentrated in the banking system in China, whereas it's more diverse in other markets. That said... It's very possible that a small bank like Baoshang or, you know, say one that's twice its size, which would still be relatively small, but if it's to have a liquidity problem, that could cause big problems for the interbank market in China where all the banks are lending from. So when Baoshang was taken over, interbank rates went up quite a bit. Um, there was definitely concerns that Baoshang would not make good on all of its interbank loans. If something, you know, a bank of a larger size with larger interbank borrowings was to have a similar problem, you know, you could see a bigger cash crunch in the interbank market. 
Well, do keep an eye on this. I know you will, Don. It does sound something that we should keep a close watch on. Thanks very much for joining us. Well, for our final piece today, an unusually light-hearted theme, we're joined by Laura Noonan, who's our US banking editor. But today she's not going to be talking about the trials and tribulations of Wall Street's finest. Instead, you're here to talk about running, Laura. You wrote a fascinating piece for last weekend's FT about how obsessed you are with running, but also how obsessed so many of the bankers that you meet in your day job are about running as well. What is it? What turns people on to running so much in the field that you cover? So I'm not sure we'd use the word obsessed. I think we'd more say that we do it a lot and we very much enjoy doing it a lot. In terms of why it's such a big thing, I went and interviewed a whole range of people who I already knew who were into running and then new people who I met to ask them what it is about the activity that kind of gets them so into it. And there was a real range of responses. I mean, there's obviously the convenience factor. It's something that if you have a busy job, you can fit it in anywhere. But then there's also the side of it that gives you something which is your own time every day so it can be very hard to carve out time where you can just think about things or just be on your own and not have the demands that we all have constantly so a lot of people really valued the solitary nature of it a lot of people also used it as something which they did with both colleagues clients and that was a really fascinating thing so I wrote a piece previously about people doing meetings running which was a very divisive topic as well and people were saying that that was something which was unfair to people who didn't run but actually it came up again as one of these things where people try to run with colleagues they try to run with clients and they find that that's a much healthier and a much deeper way of actually bonding with people than the more traditional going out for drinks um, dinner. The other thing that I really like about running as an activity to bond with colleagues and with clients is that running is a much more gender diverse activity so we find women tend to run a little bit more but it's a roughly 55-45% split across a lot of races and that kind of shows you that if you think about the more traditional pursuits where you're not doing dinner, you're not doing drinks, you're going to watch sports or you're going to play golf, those often tend to be very much male dominated things and running I think is one where both sexes are much more likely to be equally involved. Before we conclude, just give us a little name drop of some of the best known bankers that you've talked to and that you've bonded with over running. I don't really want to get into who I bonded with over running, but in terms of the piece, the piece mentioned some runners like Christian Zewing, who's chief executive of Deutsche Bank. And the kind of cornerstone for the piece was the JP Morgan Corporate Challenge, which a lot of the listeners will be familiar with. It's this big corporate race run across 13 cities that people do with their firms and Christian did that run last year even though he had just taken over Deutsche had a lot going on he spoke in the piece about why he thought it was important to go and do that run Jamie Diamond chief executive of JP Morgan Chase he also runs I haven't seen him do a corporate challenge but he definitely runs a fair bit um, we obviously in the UK there's been lots of running bankers like Mark Carney governor of Bank of England he famously did the London Marathon a lot of other high profile bankers have also done the London Marathon um, so I think there's certainly a lot of very senior people who run but there are also people right throughout their careers who run I think one of the good things is that a lot of more senior people and even not so much at the chief executive level but more at the managing director and director level they run and they publicly take time for it and they encourage their juniors to do and I think that's a very healthy thing because banking can be a very all-consuming thing when you're in the earlier stages of your career and you think I need to put in 14 hours FaceTime every day, 16 hours FaceTime. So to actually see some of the more senior people running and to think, okay, they're setting aside time in their day. Maybe it's okay for me to set aside time in my day. And maybe if Mark Carney can find time to run, then I am in fact not too busy to run. I think that's a very healthy message. 
Well, thank you for that, Laura. Hopefully you've inspired lots of our listeners. I'm afraid you haven't converted me. I'm going to stick to 40 minutes on the squash court. That's all that my body can handle. Thanks until next week. That's all for this week. Thank you to Caroline Binham here in the studio with me, to Laura Noonan from New York and to Don Wineland in Beijing. Thank you also for listening. Do remember that you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.